0: There are points in time when um, God works in incredible ways. And we're seeing that over in uh, the Middle East right now with the forming and uh, falling of a dictator. And uh, it's interesting how God works through history and time. And, and that's what this, this book shows us in the book, uh, the Old Testament prophet Haggai. He, he was, we don't know a lot about this guy. But uh, I want to um, read for you this morning just the first chapter, and I would encourage you to read it for yourself. It's just a little book. You can probably read it in less than 20 minutes, 20, 30 minutes. And uh, prophetically, uh, it really spoke to my heart as I read through it and prepared the studies on this. We're going to be having about five lessons on, on the uh, book And uh, so you'll have time to spend time with this prophet in the Word of God. And uh, today we're just going to do some background and introduction, and then next week we'll actually uh, get into the the text of the book itself. But it's kind of an important thing to set up a lot of these Old Testament books so you know historically where they're at. So first of all, um, as you turn over to the book of Haggai, I want to read for you out of chapter 1, just the first um, chapter and uh, set the tone for our message this morning. In the second year of the king Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shittiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, The people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house shall be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, It is time for you yourselves to to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Uh, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because, because of my house that is in ruins, while everyone of your of, of every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the dew withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land in the mountains. On the grain and the new wine and the oil, and whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock stock and all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetiel, the son of Jehozadak, and jo- jo- Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord. Of hosts, their God on the twenty-fourth day of the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. Sorry about that. It's about time for me to get a large print Bible, I think, uh, or a new set of glasses. I have contacts on them. But anyway, I, I want to just kind of lay the groundwork this morning for these series of messages because I think they're they're very vital, um, not only to you um, as believers, but also to Uh, our church. And there's some basic things that we need to understand about this book and about the prophet. There's some historical facts I want to share with you. There's some biographical facts. There's some facts about the date of this writing, this prophecy. And so I, I pray that you'll kind of bear with us this morning as we get a lot of this groundwork out of the way, because it's essential that we understand the background of this prophet and the book If we're going to understand what he's saying and what he's doing here. So first of all, the historical background, the historical facts. Um, First of all, he's the 10th of 12 minor prophets. Uh, You may have heard the term post-exilic prophet or pre-exilic prophet. You may have heard those terms pre-exilic, exilic, and post-exilic prophets. What that means is it refers to when the prophets spoke in relation to their Babylonian captivity. Was it before their captivity, during their captivity, or after that their captivity? The, the pre-exilic prophets came to warn of impending judgment. That's why they were sent by God. And some of those were Obadiah. He wrote about Edom. Uh, Amos, Hosea, and Joel wrote about the northern kingdom. Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, and Jeremiah wrote to warn Judah. They were the pre-exilic prophets before their captivity of 70 years in Babylon. Then you had the exilic prophets, which actually wrote to assure the people while they were in captivity, to assure them that God would restore their land one day, that God didn't forget about them. So the first set was to warn of the coming judgment. The second set was during the judgment itself, and God wanted them to be reassured that one day he was going to restore them. Ezekiel and Daniel wrote from the Babylonian captivity to encourage the people of God that one day he would restore their nation. And then you have the post-exilic prophets, those who wrote to assure the people that God would deal with a restored community according to the same principles That he has in the past. Because if you stop and think about it. They've been in captivity for some 70 years. And I'm sure that it entered their mind. That you know what Babylon has defeated us. They're holding us captive. And so you know what the Babylonian gods. Are must be greater than Yahweh. I'm sure that entered their mind. Because they were defeated. They were being held as slaves. For 70 some years. And one of the post exilic prophets' jobs was to point out that Yahweh was superior to all gods. And the only reason that Israel was being defeated by the Babylonians at that time was because God was disciplining them. And so Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi were writing, they're the, the post exilic prophets, they were writing to the people who had returned from captivity. In Babylon, back to Jerusalem and they've been there away for 70 years Um, I don't know if you've ever been held captive by somebody I know my one nephew Luke was held captive by Saddam Hussein in Iraq for about 9 months when he was uh, taken prisoner in Kuwait he was a marine guard at the Kuwaiti embassy and he was actually taken prisoner there and they hauled him back to Iraq Baghdad actually and he was held there for 9 months He said it wasn't fun. Um, To be in captivity, to have your freedoms restrained, to be dealing with that kind of pressure would no doubt wear you down to some degree. And so here we have these post exilic prophets, the ones after they returned. And he is. Uh, Basically, one of those, Haggai, Zechariah, and uh, Malachi. Now, a couple words about um, the children of, of, of Judah. They've come out of this land of Babylon. They've been out of their captivity now. And they're back in the city of Jerusalem, their homeland. And Haggai, the prophet Haggai, is coming to tell them and prophesying to them and giving them a message. Hopefully a message of encouragement. Um, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, they all prophesy around the same time, the last three prophets of the Old Testament. Um, They prophesied about between 500 and 400 years before Christ. And they were the last men to speak before God spoke through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, other than the New Testament prophet John the Baptist. Couple of interesting things about these prophets. Haggai prophesied in three months, over a period of three months. Zechariah prophesied over a period of three years. Big difference. Three months, three years. The one thing that tells me is this, and this is the first principle I have for you out of this book, is that God uses different people with different gifts in different places over different periods of time for different purposes that he may have. I mean, that's a good thing. Praise God that we're all not the same. Amen? I mean, that we're not all cut out of a cookie cutter. God uses all of us. Each of us are unique in certain ways. He doesn't want us to copy somebody else. He doesn't want us to try to be like somebody else. He wants us to be ourselves. And we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And he will... Use us as sanctified personalities for His glory, if we allow Him to. You know, it's it's funny sometimes. You go to <coughs> different places, you go to conferences or whatever. We go down to the Shepherds Conference every year, and so many times it's easy as a pastor of a smaller church and uh, to walk away from a conference like that, totally discouraged, <laughs> just discouraged and you know that's not their intention obviously they want to encourage you i mean they they bless their socks off down there but sometimes you know you're thinking okay well well gee why is god blessing here and sometimes you question his blessing in your own ministry or your own field of work or whatever it might be and sometimes you go to those things and you can walk away being kind of down you know in the in the in the dumps and it's always encouraging to me when i come back to portions of scripture like this that encourage us to just be who we are you don't have to be somebody you're not you you know the idea is not to go to a conference like that and try to copy everything they do and bring it back to this church and try to do exactly what they do it would never happen it wouldn't work churches have tried that and they failed miserably no matter what your model is you know you have to be who you are And that's an important thing. But with that being said, we have to understand that God wants us to use our spiritual gifts. God uses different people with different gifts in different places over different periods of time for different purposes. A couple verses just to remind you that you do have a spiritual gift and that God does want to use you. Romans chapter 12. You can turn over there or chapter 11. Turn over there with me. Romans chapter 11. And just look at verses uh, 29 to start off. Romans chapter 11, just take a little couple verses here in the New Testament to focus on our, our gifts, our calling, what God expects from us. Romans chapter 11, verse 29, it says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Are irrevocable. In other words, God has given all of us as believers certain spiritual gifts to use for his glory within the church and within the world to win those to Christ. Don't think that for a minute he looked over he overlooked you and you didn't get a gift. Everybody who is in Christ has a spiritual gift. Just a couple of verses over, Romans chapter 12 Verses three to eight. It says, "For the, for by the grace of God, for the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly than he ought to think of himself, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function." Verse five. So we. Though many are one body in Christ and individually member, members of one another, <coughs> having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in teaching the one who exhorts in exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You see here that God basically covers a multitude of giftings. And he says we're all different. Grace Bible Church is made up of, of a variety of people with different giftings, different callings, as it were. And then over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, it says, Paul writes this, So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody within the body of Christ is lacking at least one spiritual gift. We know that to be true. Many people have multiple gifts that he's used. 1 Corinthians 7 7 says, I wish that all were as myself. This is Paul speaking. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. See, it's important to understand that we're all gifted in a myriad of ways. And God has strategically placed us in this church to use our gifts for his glory. And then also over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, (coughs) Paul writes a rather lengthy section here, but bear with me. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. You know that you were... uh, that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the, Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. There are diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences in ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. In other words, God gives you gifts, spiritual gifts, not to take your gift and take it home and hoard it and put it in the closet. And shine it and make sure it works. But don't use it. That's not what God gave you these gifts for. He gave these gifts to you so that you could use them for the profit of all, it says. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit, gifts of healings. By the same Spirit, workers of miracles. To another, prophecy and other, discerning of the spirits. To another, different kinds of languages. To another, the interpretation of languages. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. See, God gives you gifts based on who you are. And he, he gives you whatever gifts he wants to give you. You don't go up to God and say, I want this gift, but I don't want that gift. Some of you have a a gift of helps that, you know what, You're, you're behind the scenes. You're doing things that most people wouldn't even think of doing. And nobody ever knows you even do it. And you find satisfaction in using that gift for God's glory. And you would never think of teaching a class or getting in front of people and giving your test, whatever, I mean, that just makes you, you know, sick to your stomach. But boy, you'll gladly serve (coughs) the Lord behind the scenes because that's how God's geared you. (coughs) Other people are more out in front. In verse 12, it says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that body, being many, are one body. So also is Christ, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not the eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, that would be kind of a weird thing. First of all, a giant eyeball. Where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, then where would the smelling be? But now God has, look at what it says, set the members, each one of them, in the body just as what? He pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now, verse 20, Indeed, there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor for our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism or division in the body, but that members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, what's it say? All the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, then all the members suffer rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ in members individually and God has appointed these in the church first apostles second prophets third teachers after that miracles gifts of healings helps administration varieties of tongues languages all of the, are all apostles are all prophets are all teachers are all workers of miracles do all have the gift of healings do all speak with languages do all interpret but earnestly desire the best gifts. And he's going to show him a more excellent way. And then he goes into the chapter on love. See, it's important for us to understand that we all have a gift. One last verse, 1, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 14 and 15 says, Do not neglect, this is Paul speaking to Timothy. He says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, When the council of elders laid hands on you, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that you may see your progress. See, a lot of times people don't progress. Christians do not progress in their Christian faith because they're not using their gifts. They're not exercising. They're not doing what God has divinely designed them to do. They grow lethargic. And so... Rather than ministering to the body, they're always looking to be ministered to. And that's never a good thing. We should come together on a Sunday morning praying, how, how is God going to use me today to encourage somebody? How is God going to let me reach out to somebody? We should pray throughout the week, that same prayer every day. Maybe at your job, maybe at your work, maybe where you play, whatever, the gym you work out in, whatever it might be. God, how do you want to use me today to encourage somebody? To reach somebody for the cause of Christ. And he has gifted you to do that. And you may sit there and say, well, I don't know a whole lot. You don't need to know a whole lot. If you know that God saved you, that's good enough. Then you know that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. You know that he's given you the power to share whatever you might share with people. If it's the word of God, you can't go wrong. So take a couple verses and share it with somebody. We don't have to come up with some slick little presentation or some little track or whatever. Share the word of God. That's where the power lies. It's not in your words. It's in God's word. Well, that speaks basically of our spiritual giftings. Let's look at some biographical facts about this prophet Haggai. His name, first of all, means festive or festival. That's what it means. They named the the book after the prophet. Uh, We don't know why he was named that. Some people believe that he was born maybe near a festival day. Some suggest that um, it was related to the prophetic hope of the coming temple and the glory of God returning. Uh, Some believe that uh, he... He was, he was named that because he had some kind of a uh, um, relationship to some festival. We don't know. We just don't know. Uh, we don't know much about this guy either. So I say biographical facts. We don't know a lot. Um, matter of fact, and as you try to study a lot of the minor prophets, you don't know a lot about their backgrounds like Habakkuk, many of the minor prophets. You just don't know a lot about this guy. Um, We don't know where he came from. We don't know his lineage. We don't know his family. All we know about this guy is that he's come out with Zerubbabel. He came out of Babylon. He was in exile with these folks, and he came out. And he has been delivered with them. And now he stands before us in this little book, ready to prophesy for God. He's now a gray old man, basically. Remember, they've been in captivity for 70 years. This isn't some spring chicken. I almost said he's a gray-headed man. <laughs> but there are some old that are not gray and there are some gray haired that are not old. <laughs> so you can't really say that. Then there's some that we're just lacking in that department altogether, so we don't even go there. But he's here, is the, the point. And it's amazing that this guy just kind of springs onto the scene. We've never heard about this man, hey guy, before. And we don't hear about him afterwards. Very little is known about him. They've been in exile for 70 years. And God has been preparing this man for this time. I mean, he's an older man. He could probably look at his own life and say the best years of his life are behind him, not ahead of him. And yet, God is now ready to use this man, the prophet Haggai. That kind of blows the the thinking of a lot of older people in the older generation that, well, now it's time for the young people to come up and do the work of God. I've done my part. You can't say that. That's not biblical. That's not right. There's no retirement in Christianity. What are you talking about? God was preparing this man just like he prepared Moses. And God had a purpose. And this purpose... He prepared him all his life for this. And guess what? It's three months. This is how long his ministry lasts. Three months. His whole life was being prepared for three months of ministry that God strategically placed at this time in history. But you know what? He was willing to fit into God's plan. That's an important thing. Are you willing to fit into God's plan or do you have your own agenda? Do you have your own plan? Even if it's only three months, are you willing to do what God has called you to do? Now, rather than preaching like many of the other minor prophets did, they they preached about compromise within society, and they preached about compromise within religion, and the corruption in government, all sorts of things. Haggai is not talking about anything like that in his book, in his prophecy. But he does prophesy about complacency. (laughs) If you had to sum it up in one word, that's kind of what what it's about. It's about complacency. One commentator calls him the prophet of priorities. It's important for us to understand that, as I said earlier, a lot of times history goes along... To a certain key point. And at that certain key point. Something happens in history. That changes the world. A challenge emerges. And the next part of history. Depends on how the leaders of that day. React to that challenge. Think about it. August 1939. Was one such moment. When Hitler was invading Danzig, and would England go to war as she threatened to do, or would she just back off? Would she allow him to do whatever he wanted? Well, we know that England did go to war, and it marked out the course of Western history for decades. We remember President Reagan standing at the wall. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Incredible moment in history. And even today, in our current situation in the Middle East, we're seeing another such time as that. How it's going to turn out, we don't know yet. Well, the year 520 was like that. It was that kind of a key moment in history. And here, Haggai has four messages that God has given him. And he Reveals them to him, to us, in these two chapters of this small little book. The first one, look at the book of Haggai with me. Begins in chapter one, verse one. <clears throat> Some water here. Chapter one, verse one. It says, In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. This is his first message. You can see that each message begins with, In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month or whatever the the day was. This first message, if you look up there on the chart, basically covers verses 1 through 15. And each one of these messages speaks to a certain kind of a segment of who they are. The first message speaks to their hands. And it talks about building God's temple. And if you put it in modern day terms, it was around August 29th. 520 B.C., if we looked at our calendar, not theirs. Then the second message you see over in chapter 2, verse 1, see the same thing in the seventh month, same introduction. And that would have been around October 17th. And there he speaks more to their hearts as you read through that message. The third message begins in chapter 2, verse 10. It says, in the fourth and twentieth day of the ninth month. The last two messages are on the same day, but they're separate messages on December 18th, 520. And on both of those, he speaks to their heads. The fourth message is also on December 18th, but it's a separate message. And so it's important for us to understand this is what the prophet, by God's doing, was laid out in front of him. Four messages on three separate days. And when you go home, you might want to break open your Bible and actually read through the book of Ezra. If you read through the book of Ezra, you're going to have a better understanding of the book of Haggai. Because it gives the whole historical background. We're just kind of given bits and pieces here this morning. But Ezra really tells how the children of Judah came out of Babylon. And how they got back to the land of Jerusalem. So I would encourage you to read that little book as well. So let me give you a little bit of historical background of what's happening here in this little book. We know that up to this point, there's been prophecies made throughout history, throughout the different prophets, Habakkuk, other, that are going to come to pass. The Lord would say things like, I will work a work in your day. And then God did that work. God told Habakkuk, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans and they're going to come in like a flood. And they're going to take all of you and take you captive. And they're going to hold you in Babylon. Well, that's exactly what happened for 70 years. So now here we are in the prophet Haggai. And it's, once I said before, a post-exilic prophet, which means after the exile. And Judah, the nation of Judah, has now returned to Babylon. It's the year five. 36 BC and they spent basically 70 years in captivity in Babylon. Now you remember that Babylon empire has been defeated it was defeated by the Medo Persian empire and you can read about that in the book of Daniel. And you read about Belshazzar and remember his drunken orgy, whatever was going on back there, and all of a sudden God told him that his days were numbered, and he was found waiting and wanting in the scales, and it says that this man Cyrus came in and conquered the whole of that empire, and when Cyrus came in, and when the the Medo-Persian empire was reigning, the Judean exiles were under the control of King Cyrus. It's very important to understand that. Because King Cyrus was the king who allowed them to return from Babylon to Jerusalem. Some 50,000 in the remnant there. So they come back from Babylon because King Cyrus allowed them to do that. They come back to Jerusalem. Cyrus was gracious enough towards them to, to let them begin to build their temple. So they began to rebuild the altar of the offering, and they put a foundation of the temple down. But what the Jews didn't understand is they wanted to do it all themselves. And there was a group called the Samaritans, and you can read about that, as I said, in Ezra chapter 3 and 4. And this group of Samaritans that were kind of used as scoundrels, they wanted to help rebuild the temple. And the purebred Jews said, no way, we're going to build this temple Ourselves, we're going to build it our way. We're not going to allow you, mongrel Samaritans, to have a part in it. You're not going to have anything to do with it. Well, obviously, that ticked the Samaritans off. They wanted to be part of the building of the temple too. The the Jews wouldn't allow them to do that, and so as a result, they went back to King Cyrus and they told all sorts of lies about what was going on. They they made up all these plots and all, all sorts of things. They just made this stuff up out of thin air. Well, what happened was, as a result of that, the building of the temple was delayed for about 16 years. All because of some Samaritans back in their day. And for 16 years, the foundations of that temple got overgrown with weeds, began to turn to rubble, basically. All because the the Judean children were discouraged because they had some opposition of the Samaritans. And you can read all about that in Ezra chapter 4. So for 16 years, no work at all was done to the temple. None. All there was there was foundations. That was it. Well, time passed, and eventually, King Cyrus died. And by the way, his son also committed suicide. And after that, Darius I came into power. And when he came into his rule, he found this old decree by King Cyrus. What was his decree? His decree was that the children of Judah were allowed to come back from Babylon to Jerusalem, but also that they were allowed to rebuild their temple. And Darius I found it again, and because of that, he paved a way for the children of Judah to now begin, once again, after 16 years, rebuilding their temple that they started. Can you imagine starting a project that you began 16 years ago? (laughs) I mean, it's kind of exciting to start new projects, right? Start new projects. Maybe you're doing something in the backyard or you're working on your car, whatever. It's kind of exciting at first. But if things don't work out just the way you want, and that project continues and continues and goes on and on and on and on. I mean, can you imagine that happening for 16 years? And that project, unfinished, is still there. Well, their problem, because after 16 years, the Jews had become apathetic. 16 years had gone by, they were discouraged. They were disappointed. Because you know what? They couldn't build that temple in the beginning because of the Samaritans' opposition. And so now they got themselves into this situation where they were just weighed down by all the negatives of their situation. Their circumstances just far outweighed any hope that they had. And even when King Darius said, go ahead, build the temple. You can do it. I'm allowing you to. Go for it. They couldn't bring themselves to rebuild God's temple. Even though they knew that's what they were supposed to be doing. So in the second year of King Darius, 520 B.C., that's where we're at now, historically. Hopefully that puts things in perspective for you. And and God selected Haggai to be the prophet to encourage these folks. Let's, let's get it going. And what's interesting is within four weeks of this man opening his mouth, the work of God had begun on his temple. Pretty effective. He's a pretty effective prophet, even though... His prophecies only lasted three months. Haggai opened his mouth and he told the message, as we've seen in chapter one, verse and in verse uh, through verse thirteen, God's message for God's man at God's time. And he told it as God had told him to tell it. And eventually, the work got started in four weeks, and eventually, the temple was erected. <coughs> If you want to know what type of temple it was, it was Zerubbabel's temple. That's what it's known as. It began the age, the temple age, of the second temple period. Now, the temple doesn't seem to be as extravagant and as beautiful as Solomon's temple. It doesn't even seem to have had, at this point, the glory of God or the Ark of the Covenant there. But nevertheless, God's word, when it came at God's time, and more importantly, when it was obeyed by God's people, had God's purpose in result. A couple verses I want you to look at. First one, verse 14 of chapter 1. Two key verses in the book. The first one So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of. Shetiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, uh, their God. The second one is over in chapter 2, verse 9. It says, The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Now, before we actually get in next week to studying this verse by verse, I want you to notice a couple things about the timing of this prophet. A couple things about the timing of this prophet. Uh, This was a prophet who had God's message. He was God's man with God's message in God's time. And he was God's messenger. Why had it come in God's time? Why did the prophet. Was he raised up at this time? Well as you look at this month. This day in the month that we're reading. The month of. uh, Elu is how you say it I guess. um, It basically indicates that it's. Was a six month period. And. This this month of Elul is the sixth month. And so the month before Elul was the month when the whole of Judah would have remembered the destruction of the temple some 70 years previous. So temples were in their mind during this time. They lost their prized possession just the month before 70 years ago, the place where God dwelt. Secondly, the timing when this prophecy was given is significant because it was the first day of the month. And the first day of the month in their culture was kind of like a Sabbath almost, a day of rest. It was a holy day. It was a day when they would worship God. It was a day when the people came to listen to what the message of God was through the prophet of God. See, God had this all set up. So you might consider Haggai with a prophet, with he had a captive audience. They came and they were ready to hear something. You know, just a word on this. That's what we need to understand today. When we come to church on Sundays, I pray that you come prepared to hear God's word. You don't just kind of wandering off the street and, hey, I think I'll listen to a sermon today. But you come prepared to hear God's word. Not my words, but God's word. And even people that don't even know Christ who come. They need to have their hearts prepared to hear God's word. Only he can do that. We can't do that. But as the seed of God's word is given out. And it falls on to good ground. The Bible says that only God can can make that happen. But he does that in response to our prayers. So in verse 1 of Haggai chapter 1. It says there, mentions two people specifically, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Two key people, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel was the, you might consider him the civil leader of Judah. He was the political head. Joshua, on the other hand, was the spiritual leader. He was the high priest. And you say, well, why did God give this message to them? Why didn't he just give it to the people? Why did he give it to the leaders? If you look at the lineage of Zerubbabel, you're going to find out that he was an heir to King David, to the Davidic throne. He was in the Messianic line. He was related to the lordship of Jesus Christ himself. Joshua, of course, was the high priest. He was important because he was the one who was to lead God's people, hopefully, back to God. But why did he give it to just these two people and not to the rest of the folks? I'll tell you why. Because God knows, as he knows in any age and in any church, that if somehow he can grab a hold of and ignite the hearts of the leadership of an organization, of a church, whatever it might be, then it will inspire the people. It was Wesley who said this, if your pulpit is on fire, they'll come to watch you burn. (laughs) See, we need to understand that we have to believe that we're, we're here in this place strategically, just like Haggai was at God's time. It's not about us. It's about God. It's about God carrying out his will through our church, through our lives personally. Now, a couple things here about the people and the place. And this starts to kind of begin our application. Next week, we're actually going to get into his first message. But like I said, you just got to lay down this foundation. Or you're not going to have a clue when we get into the text, what we're talking about. But these people were not like all those who lived in Israel and Judah previously. The people that Haggai was speaking to were not like them. They were neglecting to build the temple, and that was serious in God's eyes, obviously. It was an indication that somehow their spiritual priorities were off. They weren't right. They were basically living for themselves rather than living for God's glory. But you know what? They were still the right people. Living in the right place, wanting to do the right work for the right reasons. And I just want to talk a couple minutes about these things. Haggai was dealing with the right people. They were select people whose devotion to and zeal for God were evident in their lives. Uh, It's summed up in the spiritual meaning of the word remnant. That's what they were referred to. It means that they were not the entire body of Jewish people of all time. Many thousands had been carried away into Syria. Others had been deported to Babylon, different places. In fact, when, when King Cyrus issued the decree permitting the Jews to return to their homeland and rebuild their temple, most of the exiled Jews remained in Babylon. They didn't want to make the trip. They'd settled down. They prospered during their, their period of exile there for 70 years. It was only around 50,000 that actually left Babylon, 42 1,360 to be exact, plus 7,337 7, servants and 200 singers. They actually left Babylon and made the long journey back to Judah with Zerubbabel. One commentator says this, The remnant to whom the message was given was composed of Israelites who were distinguished by special devotion to the Lord. It was their devotion to him and their zeal for his house that the cause, that was the cause of their separation from the mass of their brethren who remained behind in Babylon. They were therefore a choice company of people. They had been separated for a purpose of great importance for the direct line of God's dealings was to continue with them to the coming of Christ. They were the right people. See, we have to believe in our hearts that, you know what, we're the right people today. That we're not here to be entertained. We're not here to just to have a big church, to have a big church. That's not what we're about. We're here to do what God calls us to do. And I think that if you've been here for any length of time, you understand what our church is about. You're not going to come in and see some spectacle on a Sunday morning that's going to whet your appetite and cause you to come back for more next week, bigger and better, brighter lights, louder music. That's not going to happen here. That's not what it's about. And I think a majority of us understand that. And I think that it relates. We're the right people for what God is calling us to do. The second thing, the people to whom God directs his word through Haggai, were in the right place. They were in the right place. They were in Jerusalem. And all the, the, at the, the call of God, and they weren't in Babylon with the people that stayed back. Those who preferred to uh, have their own way of life and prosperity back there. They didn't want to put up with the rigors of returning to Jerusalem. They had already settled down. See, today God is not restricting his work to a particular place. God doesn't do that. You remember when the Samaritan woman asked Jesus whether the mountain of Gerizim in this Samaria or Jerusalem was a proper place to worship? Remember that? In John, 4, John chapter 4, Jesus replied, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Yet a time is coming and now has come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. See, that's what our hearts should be all about when we come together on a Sunday morning. We want to worship God in spirit and truth. Anything else is fluff. That time came with his own death and his own resurrection as Jesus spoke those words. But it was not yet true in the days of Haggai the old prophet in the Old Testament. That was a period when God had placed a special value on Jerusalem. That was their homeland. They were required that sacrifices for sin be made there and nowhere else. So if you had to do that, you would have to go to Jerusalem to do it. And he had actually punished his people by exiling them. But he also promised... To bring them back after seventy years of their exile were finished. See, this was the hope of the people while they were in Babylon. They were in the right place. And the people had returned with Zerubbabel. It wasn't an easy journey. I mean, think about it. You're living somebody somewhere 70 years, you're being held captive for 70 years, and then all of a sudden, hey, you're free to go. Seventy years is a long time. You're going to put down some roots so when the call to return came, they left Babylon and got back to Jerusalem as soon as possible because they knew that was the right thing to do. God sends him to a particular place and to a specific group of people with God's message. They were the right people, but they were also in The right place. Sometimes you have to settle that in your own heart. My daughter and son in law are getting ready to move to Washington, D.C. I just get antsy about the whole thing. I don't like to move, never like to move. You know, I'd live in the same place the rest of my life if I could. That's just the way I am. Every three years, they're moving. It's not up to them. That's just how the Navy works. But I have no doubt if they end up in Washington, D.C., that's exactly where God wants them to be. We must also be in the right place. Third, the remnant to whom Haggai spoke also wanted to be about the right work. What are we to be about as Christians? I mean, there are a lot of things that we need to do. You know, there's a lot of things in our lives that sometimes clutter our time schedules. These folks needed to provide homes for their families, obviously. They needed to make a living. In their case, largely, it was through farming. They needed to establish schools, shops, commerce, trade. And there, these are all valid Pursuits. Nobody's going to look at that and go, What are you doing that for? It makes sense. See, but in addition to these, and chief among these, God wanted the people to know and understand that they also needed to be about rebuilding the temple, which is what God had put into their heart through King Cyrus in a decree in his sovereignty. As Ezra tells us, the first thing the people did when they arrived in Jerusalem was take a freewill offering toward the rebuilding of the house of God. First thing they did. It was a substantial offering. Don't worry, we're not taking an offering this morning and that's not the purpose of bringing it up. I'm just telling you what they're doing. Some of you are kind of, I don't know. Ezra says this, According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 drachmas of gold, 5,000 minions of silver, and 100 priestly garments. It's in Ezra chapter 2. In our weight, the gold was 1,100 pounds. That's quite a bit. You look at the price of gold. 13,200 ounces. You ever seen that show, the gold people and their whatever, gold diggers or whatever? <laughs> that show, Gold Rush, that cracks me up, that show. They're still holding out for the glory hole, you know. The silver weighed three tons. And see, the people used this money to pay the masons and the carpenters to transport the cedar logs from Lebanon they needed. And then in the second month of the second year in, in Judah, after they'd established themselves and presumably bought Brought in their, their first harvest and everything. They began to work. And, 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 and it progressed as far as laying the foundation of this great temple. They got that far. They clearly wanted to serve God and put his work above their own interests. I thank God. that I mean, our church may be small, but a lot of folks within our own church desire to serve God. And they desire to put God's work Above their own interests. I see it on a weekly basis. Fourthly, the people were working for the right reasons. And this is critical. And we'll close with this. I mean, we can imagine them rebuilding this temple, setting out on this, asserting themselves. And, you know, they have this national pride. We're going to restore this temple. The Babylonians destroyed our temple and now we're going to show them. We're going to rebuild it again. We can imagine them even attempting to construct a monument to their own fierce independence, something like the Tower of Babel. See, they those things didn't motivate them. They were not their motivations. So many times today, people are all about church growth, are all about interested in, in growing a big church for the wrong reasons. It's not about growing a big church. Last time I checked, Jesus Christ is in charge of his church and he's doing just fine. That doesn't mean we don't pray for people to be saved. doesn't mean we don't go out and witness... We don't go out and invite people and and go out into the highways and byways and encourage people to come. Why? Because this is a fantastic church? No, because they're going to hear the word of God. Their sole desire was to please God. That's why they wanted to do this. Philip Morrow says this, They were characterized by affection and zeal for God's house. And this is a great thing in his sight. Not only so, but in pursuit of that object, they had voluntarily turned away from all the magnificent grandeur and luxury of Babylon, where after a long residence, the people of God had become thoroughly domesticated. They had faced trials and difficulties in crossing the intervening territory, and the result of all their efforts and hardships was but to bring them to a desolated land and a ruined city. So their devotion and zeal for the Lord's interest had been fully proved. There was nothing to attract them to that land and to that city except the fact that it was God's holy land and the city which he had chosen to put his name there. So the people to whom Haggai spoke were the right people at the right place doing the right work for the right reasons. And yet years had gone by and they were caught up in their own pursuits to the point where they let the work for which they had come originally to Jerusalem they just let it slide. No temple continuing to be built. Sixteen years since anybody even touched the foundations. And there's many people in our day that are similar like that. They're not unbelievers. You wouldn't even say they're unconcerned believers. These people want to know what the will of God is. They want to do the will of God. At least they did at one time. Perhaps they used to witness to their neighbors, their friends, their co-workers... Perhaps they were zealous for God in the years immediately following their conversion. But you know, life moves on. And now there's a job, or a wife, or children, or pick your myriad of dozens, things, a dozen things that you can pick from. A million things to think about. And somehow, well meaning. Christians somehow have left the work of God slide. They've left the work to a younger generation or newer Christians. And the word of God by hey, I comes to such people like that. To you, if you're somebody like that. God says, what is the condition of my house? What is the condition of my work in your home? In your church, in your neighborhood, at your job, in your city, in your land. What are you doing? He's asking you this morning to fulfill the purpose for which you have been set apart to Jesus Christ to fulfill. Father, we pray this morning that as we begin this book of Haggai, I know this morning was a lot of historical background But, Lord, I pray that we would take away from this. That, Lord, we truly want to be the right people in the right place, doing the right work for the right reasons. To do anything else would not be honoring to you. And so, Father, I pray that as we've talked about a lot of things this morning, spiritual gifts, serving, sacrifice, Lord, I pray that we would walk away pondering these things in our own hearts. Father, that we would desire to do what you would have us to do, not what we want to do. And Lord, I know that if if we bind our hearts together and then we desire to serve you with pure motives and for your glory, not our own. Father, I know that You would begin a fresh work here. That we will see people come to Christ. Not because of who we are. But because of who you are. And the work that you desire to continue. Even to this day. And so Lord we pray this morning that you would. As we leave this place. Remind us of people who we need to reach out to. Remind us of those who don't know you that. Maybe we shared with at one time, but we've kind of grown lax in our testimony and in our evangelistic skills. Lord, I pray that you would renew a fresh spark within us to be motivated. Lord, we live in such a lost and dying area. There's no excuse for us not to be sharing and witnessing on a, on a daily basis with people who are lost and dying and on the way to a, a Christless eternity. And we have the word of God and the promise of Christ that can save them. And you've instructed us to pray and to go out on the highways and byways and share your gospel with those who have yet to hear. I pray that we'd be obedient to the call. If there's anyone here this morning who's yet to open their heart to you, Lord, I pray that they would understand that it's never too late. That you cry out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Father, save me from my sin. That's a a, a prayer that God will hear from a sincere heart. Thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.